This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 3rd, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The lessons of economics are easy to forget, but powerful once clearly understood. So what does the career of LeBron James have to tell us? John Tamney explains that and many other applications of economic thinking in his new book, Popular Economics. With the Rolling Stones, Downton Abbey, and LeBron James can teach you about economics. We spoke last month. Almost all of the critical concepts of economics you can learn at least the broad strokes of in a principles class. And most people who take that class promptly forget a a lot of those uh, lessons of economics. So if you had one lesson that you think is just the most critical thing for people to understand, and if more people understood it, the world would be a better place, what would that be? Probably the most critical would be that the, the beauty of free trade is that it makes it possible for us to do the work that we are singularly best at, all the while having the most talented people, not in our city, state, or country, but the most talented people in the world vying to serve our needs. And so when you think of it in terms of that, everything else ultimately flows from that basic point. The subtitle here, uh, what the Rolling Stones, Downton Abbey, and LeBron James can teach you about economics. I assume uh, LeBron James is going to teach us about comparative advantage? He is. He, he teaches you about comparative advantage. And he's a reminder, though, that, that we're all, as individuals, and that's all an economy is, is we're free traders. And so LeBron James' case, he is the best basketball player on earth. No one really disputes that. But it's also said about him by people in the know that he could be a great or, you know, a pretty good NFL tight end. Now, if he pursued that, it would be at the expense of a lot of income and it would be at the expense of his being the best basketball player on earth. And so we as individuals should apply that to how we live we should do the job that most animates our talent, that makes us most productive, and then import from others from across the street and around the world, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, uh, the apartments and houses we live in. Let others doing what they're best produce for us so that we can spend time on that which animates our individual skills the most. Now, you have some uh, harsh words here, I suppose, for the forces that are fighting for a reduction in income inequality. You go further than than that. You say that it's in fact beautiful. So, and this is a concept that I think is very difficult for uh, well-meaning, intelligent people to really grasp. So, so make your basic pitch on why income inequality is beautiful. Well, because all income and wealth inequality signal is that entrepreneurs are taking what used to formerly only be enjoyed by the rich and making it broadly available to everyone. Um, You and I both have cell phones that fit in our pockets. The first cell phone in 1983 cost $3,995. It was brick-sized at a half hour of battery life. And if you had the temerity to call from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore, it was going to cost you quite a bit for doing just that. There are billionaires today. They've created massive amounts of inequality. But because they exist, we have phones that once again fit in our pockets and we can call anywhere. The computer that IBM, the first mainframe, they created it in the 1960s. It cost over a million dollars. It filled several rooms and it didn't do anything. Nowadays, we can buy computers that are very small and cost a few hundred dollars. And that's precisely because someone, people like Michael Dell got very rich. So inequality is just the process whereby the living standards gap between rich and poor is shrunk. It's a wonderful thing. 
And that's, a, that's an interesting point. Wealth inequality shrinks the gap between rich and poor as long as it is within the context of markets. Yeah, of course. And that's the only wealth inequality there is. Now, there are politicians who get wealthy by stealing from people, but that's theft. And so that's not even inequality. We're talking market-based inequality, the likes of which we experience in the United States. It's the beautiful process whereby entrepreneurs make what the rich enjoy available to everyone. And I, I think the, the other thing that needs to be added to this is, again, an economy is just a collection of individuals. It's not some blob. And so the question has to be asked, are we as individuals worse off when we pursue that which makes us great, that which maximizes our inequality relative to others? Or are we, are we somehow better off when we do things that we're not very good at, that we're more equal with, with others? Obviously not. We want to pursue that which animates our talents. And so inequality is what we all automatically try to achieve. It's, it, it'd be a cruel life if we were all equal. You say that savers are benefactors to society. Uh, I heartily endorse that idea, but uh, <laughs> but why specifically? There, there, you know, there's a whole school of economics out there that uh, basically uses saving versus spending as a tool uh, to serve the greater economy. Oh wait, you're describing Keynesianism, okay? <laughs> no, no, no. And so we know that. Well, yeah, because the Keynesians live in this unreal world where they think when we save, when you and I have the temerity to save a thousand dollars, or when t uh, Paris Hilton decides to save millions of dollars, that somehow she's withholding it, and we're withholding it from from society. But what happens when we when we put a thousand or millions of dollars into the bank? Banks don't take those deposits in and look at them lovingly. They pay us for the right to hold those deposits so that they can immediately lend them out. And so the point of this is that if first of all, if you want to spread the wealth around, if you want to spread the wealth of billionaires and millionaires around, let them save it because if, even if they put it in the bank, it's going to be lent to those who need a car loan, a home loan, need tuition for their children, or a small business loan. What if they put it in the stock market? Okay, they're redistributing their wealth to companies that need capital in order to grow. If it's a private equity fund because they want even higher potential returns, their wealth is being redistributed to companies that are on their deathbed that need capital to turn things around. Or venture capital fund, their wealth is being redistributed to the next Google or Microsoft. And so savers, imagine the world we live in without savings, there would be nothing. There, there cannot be entrepreneurs nor jobs, for that matter, without savings. And so they are the ultimate benefactors. They are transferring their wealth from consumption to something much greater that's going to build the, the, the world of the future. A whole lot of the, the fight over uh, taxes, spending, redistribution, um, and what you're entitled to as a, a person who works and produces uh, on earth goes down to, I think, a misunderstanding about what wealth is and where it comes from. And if everybody had the, a, a similar understanding about the nature of wealth, how it's created, how it's preserved, and how it's destroyed, maybe that would be we'd live in a different world. So what is your understanding of that concept? Well, wealth is just the process whereby we take society's resources and marshal them in ways that create greater and greater things. And that's why we want as much production and investment as possible. Let's face it, 
most often things fail. Silicon Valley is not the richest part of the world because all of its businesses succeed. It's the richest precisely because the vast majority of its startups fail. If you look at Detroit 100 years ago, it was the Silicon Valley of its time because 99% of the car companies there that were started failed. Economic growth, wealth creation is about the leap. And most often the leaps produce failures, but that failure is information onto something much greater, a surprise. And so when government removes wealth from society, when it taxes it away, it robs society of those very leaps. Think of ESPN, which I talk about a lot in the book. It was a joke back in the 1970s. Today it is one of the most valuable properties on earth in terms of sports and media. It got that way because the Getty Oil Trust, they were able to hold on to some of John Paul Getty's estate and they invested $10 million in it. And so when you think about taxing away wealth, you're taxing away the dreams of, of the future entrepreneurs who cannot animate their ideas without the existence of existing capital. So you need more and more of it. Can government do it? Even Warren Buffett couldn't do it if he weren't in government, and here's why. Government's failures are not starved. They are eternal. In the private sector, Webvan is starved of capital so that Google can receive it in abundance. That's the profit motive. That is market discipline. In government, you keep funding the losers, and so you'd have Webvan today rather than Google. You'd have Blockbuster rather than, than, than Netflix. And so this is why we need to leave it in, society, in, in the private sector because that's the only way to fund the failures that get us to the success. In talking about wealth, I'm, I'm reminded of what uh, I believe it was Nikita Khrushchev said – uh, we will bury you. And he was, wasn't talking about arms. He was talking about uh, a surplus of consumer goods. The, that was, their view was we, have, we should defeat scarcity. And, and uh, today it seems that there are so many people who oppose free markets, who enjoy abundance, and that's the actual target. It's, it's, they, they're not trying to defeat scarcity. They're sort of attacking abundance itself. Well, you know, Schumpeter talked about this in, in, in that he said that ultimately capitalism in a sense would be, would be, would be taken out by those who benefit from it the most. Let's face it, prosperity for all of its wonders, for all of the way it elongates lives, makes us much better off, makes us happier, it does make us flabby. And I think that goes far in explaining, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, in explaining why we get stupid in this country once a generation. Isn't it interesting that we got really dumb in the 1930s? We learned from our mistakes and we had prosperity. Then we got dumb once again in the 1970s. And then we, we had another major economic boom. Then we got dumb once again. I think within that lies what happens is we is we basically in the 30s, we forgot that the, the quickest way to economic growth is to remove the tax, regulatory, monetary, and trade barriers to growth. We did it in the 70s. We've done it again under Bush and Obama. That's the bad part, but it reminds us, and that's why I think we're on the verge of a major, another major economic boom, is we've remembered again why government always is a wealth destroyer, not a creator. And so the idea in writing this book is let's simplify this. Look at all the growth we're missing out on for getting stupid once a generation. John Tamney is author of Popular Economics. He's also editor of Real Clear Markets. You can learn more about the curious task of economics at our website, cato.org.